Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Fighting Cancer Podcast. I'm Carlo Navarro. We have a special conversation for episode 002. This episode, our executive director of the Cancer Research Foundation, Zana Nikitas, sits down with Dr. Lucy Godley. Dr. Godley is a professor at the Department of Medicine at the University of Chicago. She was a 2003 Young Investigator Award recipient, as well as a 2016 Fletcher Scholar Award recipient. And this episode is a conversation about Dr. Godley's Fletcher Scholar Award proposal. The Fletcher Scholar Award is another program that was established in 1988. The foundation received a generous gift from the estate of Eugene and Dorothy S. Fletcher to be used expressively for laboratory research. The gift established the Fletcher Scholars Program, which provides funding to individual senior cancer scientists undertaking cancer research of exceptional importance. Dr. Godley's proposal explores the mutation of CHECK2 may confer risk to blood and bone marrow cancers. Dr. Godley hypothesizes that inherited mutations of CHECK2 also predispose to blood and bone marrow cancers. She was inspired to pursue this proposal by a recent family that she studied in which she saw a correlation between the presence of this specific CHECK2 mutation and blood abnormalities, including leukemias and lymphomas. In addition to this proposal, they also discussed Dr. Godley's influences as a woman in science, technology, and her path to where she is today, and what early funding support of her ideas can do to help in the fight against cancer. Please enjoy this conversation with Zana Nikitas and Dr. Lucy Godley. Lucy, thank you so much for being here with us. Um, the Cancer Research Foundation, and personally, I'm absolutely thrilled that we've had so many opportunities to do work with you and to be a part of the work you're doing. And it's been, uh, I think, almost 10 years, maybe more, that we've mm-hmm. that we've had funding relationships with your lab and with you. Um, before there, I think there even was a full lab. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about sort of the latest and greatest that's coming up out of the Fletcher Award, which was the 2016 Fletcher, mm-hmm. and I know you're kind of finalizing your reports mm-hmm. on that. Yeah, well, thank you for all the support. As we may get to in the conversation, mm-hmm. when a young person has new ideas, they're not immediately accepted by the community at large, and having a foundation that's willing to invest in those new ideas is critical to move those ideas forward. So we've been such beneficiaries of the generosity of the Cancer Research Foundation. The Fletcher Award is funding our work on CHECK2, and this gene called CHECK2 has been known for many years to predispose to solid tumors, specifically colon cancers, thyroid cancers, breast, and prostate cancers. The role of that gene in the blood cancers is more of a question mark. Mm -hmm. And what we've been able to do is collect over 35 families with inherited alterations in the CHECK2 gene. And many of those individuals in those families have blood cancers. There are also solid tumors in those families Mm -hmm. as well. And so um, the Fletcher Award is funding two projects. One is to look deeper into the genetics of those individuals is the inherited CHECK2 variant the only thing those people are inheriting, or are there other genetic contributors mm-hmm. to, that's altering right. the diseases that are occurring in those people? And the other project is to model what we see in people in the mouse 
if the mouse has some or all of the features of the blood cancers that we see in the people, that will be very strong functional proof that inherited CHECK2 variants cause blood cancers. We're just in the process of making the mouse now. It's taken mm -hmm. quite a while to get the construct to be exactly what we want it to be. Mm -hmm. And we've been doing that with the transgenic facility here, and that's really in its final stages. The mouse should be born in the next couple of weeks. So we're very excited to finally have the mouse and then test whether its blood system is developing normally or not. So if this mouse model is mm -hmm. um, a good mirror for the yes. human model, will it then be a way to try new therapies or a way to try new ideas on how de cancer develops? How, how, how do you foresee seeing using that mouse model right. as it's perfected? So the first um, important implication from that mouse model will be to present to the world functional proof that mm -hmm. check two mutations predispose to blood cancers. And we have an emerging recognition across the world that inherited variants can predispose to blood cancers, and that mm -hmm. will add to the armamentarium. Once we have the model, yes, we can use it to model development of leukemia in people. Mm -hmm. We can use it to model therapeutic strategies. So we're hoping it will be useful for all of that. Do you think that uh, the mice will also show this connection to solid as well as it's blood quite cancers? possible. The way we're designing the mouse, we will be able to direct the expression of the abnormal check to to particular tissues. Okay. So if we want to ask if the variant causes breast cancer in the mouse, we'll have to ask, we'll have to direct the expression of that abnormal check to to the mammary tissue. So we're this is called a conditional mouse. So the mouse will not be born expressing the abnormal CHECK2 in all of its tissues. We'll be directing it first to express the abnormal CHECK2 in the blood system. Cool. So as it becomes more and more acknowledged mm -hmm. that um, these abnormalities, that these, these mm -hmm. mutations lead to abnormalities mm -hmm. um, and then to cancers, mm -hmm. how then do we put that into use in terms of patient care? Some of that process has already started. Mm -hmm. For me, the most important first step was that the World Health Organization included genetic predisposition to myeloid malignancies mm -hmm. in its latest classification scheme. Okay. The World Health Organization classification of bone marrow cancers is the international standard for diagnosis across the world. Mm -hmm. So now there's a new chapter, it's a provisional chapter, mm -hmm. provisional designation for germline or inherited predisposition. This is the first time it's been in the classification and has essentially put it on the diagnostic map for pathologists and clinicians across the world. The second important step is that different recommendation or guidelines for myelodysplastic syndrome, pre-leukemia mm -hmm. or acute myeloid leukemia are now coming out with the recommendation that people with a strong personal or family history should have this genetic testing. Okay. The next thing that's important is to have access to the test. And so here at the University of Chicago, we've been able to develop a very comprehensive testing platform mm -hmm. that we can provide to our patients and clinicians across the country and even across the world have actually accessed for their patients. Mm -hmm. So I get two to three phone calls a week from doctors at other institutions asking how they can have this testing for their patients and we help them with that. 
we really need to disseminate this expertise throughout the world so mm -hmm. that there'll be more access for patients. Mm -hmm. And this is why you see visitors from Peru, from Brazil, from Canada, who mm -hmm. are coming to the lab to learn our pipeline. And then hopefully they're gonna take that expertise back to their home countries and disseminate that. So not only to get all doctors to know to look for it, That's right. but also sort of the preliminaries of tr treating it. That's uh, right. Potentially differently than they would other treat other blood disorders because they know to look for this. Yeah, so probably the most immediate clinical implication is to increase the awareness among transplant physicians. Okay. So as you know, one of the major treatment modalities for patients with leukemias mm -hmm. is trans stem cell transplant using another donor. We call right. it allogeneic stem cell transplant. And the preferred donor would be a sibling donor okay. or a related donor. Mm -hmm. But of course, if we're talking about family mutations, we can have a donor who has that family mutation. And so we've implemented here pretty strict guidelines and surveillance of mm -hmm. families so that we do genetic testing sometimes as part of the pre-transplant workup. Mm -hmm having that disseminated across the country and across the world would be an improvement for all patients. Sure, and let people not get transplanted to the same disease they're being yes. cured for. Obviously, as a clinician as well as mm -hmm. a, a scientist or a clinician scientist, mm -hmm. um, you see patients. Can mm -hmm. you tell me a little bit about how the work you're doing in the lab uh, informs your patient care and the people you see every day in, in the hospital. Yes. I have a different lens, I like to say. I hear the stories a little bit differently than some of my colleagues, and I look at the data a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, we have a s test, a special molecular test in pathology, which is done on all leukemia cells. Mm -hmm. And that test was designed to provide prognostic information for patients with leukemia. When we do that test, we assume that the, the variants that we're looking at occurred in the development of the leukemia and give prognostic information about the leukemia. Mm -hmm. But of course, if you have your inherited DNA, mm -hmm. that DNA is present in all the cells of your body, including the leukemia cells. Mm -hmm. So when you see these variants on that pathology test, you actually don't know if that variant is in every cell of the patient's body or is only in the leukemia mm -hmm. cell. And because I have this lens of looking for the inherited mutations, mm -hmm. I actually get a report from pathology every month mm -hmm. of every variant called in every gene known to confer inherited susceptibility to cancer. And I look at that list with a genetic counselor. And about one to up to four patients a month we see from that list mm -hmm. could have a inherited susceptibility, mm -hmm. and that's something that needs to be added to the clinical assessment of mm -hmm. the patient. So um, so we add a little bit of expertise, given our bias, to mm -hmm. what is happening uh, with the patient. And the patients often have wondered, why did I get cancer? Why is there so much cancer in my family? And they aren't surprised when we say to them, you may have a genetic variant that predisposes you. Mm -hmm. Often they say, I always knew there was something in my DNA. Mm -hmm. um, and it gives people reassurance, actually, that they knew all along that there was something there. And then to be able to test for it and know it and survey 
family members mm-hmm. differently is actually it's actually reassuring to people. I think a lot of people first think it would be very threatening to find out that they have one of these mm-hmm. DNA variants. But the unknown is actually more threatening mm-hmm. often than knowing what the predisposition is. So I, uh, I assume that means that uh, patients can be more vigilant when they have this information and actually That's our hope, take yes. action or mm-hmm. at least know when things don't seem right to come yes. in earlier. Our hope is that people take genetic information and become more proactive mm-hmm. and allow increased surveillance that they might not have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. Or if their genetic test is negative, take away the worry mm-hmm. that they have mm-hmm. the same mm-hmm. risk as other family members. Is it your sense that we're going to continue to see that genetic testing becomes more and more important important as we track cancer and sort of drill down on how to contain it? Yes. Our vision here is that we could one day be providing genetic counseling and testing to every cancer patient who walks in the door. Um, that will take a lot of capacity mm-hmm. to provide, but that is is an emerging goal that we have. And obviously proving that it's needed, which mm-hmm. is part of what your work is mm-hmm. doing. Uh, we, as the Cancer Research Foundation, are particularly pleased to be a longtime funder of you and also mm-hmm. some of your mentees mm-hmm. as well as your mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of talk about women in science mm-hmm. and how we allow um, more women entree mm-hmm. into the mm-hmm. sciences. Can you talk a little bit about how that has worked for you mm-hmm. and how we can be more proactive in the future? Well, I am the beneficiary of a long line of strong, intelligent women at the University of Chicago. And my scientific grandmother, if you will, Mm -hmm. was Janet Raleigh. And her office still is down the Mm -hmm. hall, and we still have her name on the door um, because of the tremendous Mm -hmm. admiration we have for her. And you know that Dr. Raleigh started the Cancer Cytogenetics Laboratory, which is still in existence. And still provides much of the material that we use scientifically. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Raleigh was a great believer in molecular diagnosis, molecular pathogenesis Mm -hmm. of disease, and was really focused on the acquired chromosomal changes that are associated with cancer. And so my work is almost a step before that Mm -hmm. is what the changes that you're born with that Mm -hmm. predispose you to cancer. And my immediate mentor when I was a fellow here was, and still is, Michelle LeBeau, who's now the Cancer Center Director, and Michelle had worked in Dr. Raleigh's lab when she was Mm -hmm. a fellow. Another important mentor for me when I began my fellowship was Fumi Olapade, Mm -hmm. and still a great mentor to me. And Fumi was also a fellow in Dr. Raleigh's Mm -hmm. lab. So that's why I say Dr. Raleigh's my my <laughs> scientific grandmother mm-hmm. and Michelle and Fumi are sort of my scientific mothers, and both of them influence the way I think. And I think it's really no surprise that I'm doing the inherited genetic susceptibility mm-hmm. to blood cancers coming from that lineage. Um, what can we do to strengthen women more? Um, here at the University of Chicago, we have a tremendously supportive environment mm-hmm. for professional women. We have many, many role models. Um, across both medicine Mm -hmm. and science. And 
you see examples that yes, you can be a professional mm-hmm. and have children and go on field trips with your children and you're not considered less serious. Mm-hmm. And family life is respected and important and considered um, to be balancing your mm-hmm. professional life. Unfortunately, not all academic centers have that tradition, but we have a very strong sense of that here. I think possibly, you know, the fact that the laboratory schools is right on campus and the education of your children is an integral part of Mm -hmm. the way all professors here uh, interact with the University of Chicago Mm -hmm. community. I think that influences the way um, people see their families, the, the kids our children are educated on campus. They're, they're often coming from school to your mm-hmm. office. It's just a very common phenomenon mm-hmm. to see here, and I think it strengthens mm-hmm. um, your ability to do your work. So we have a very unique campus mm-hmm. here, a very unique um, community, sense of community here at the University of Chicago. And so it's a very, very comfortable place for a professional woman to work. Having had such strong mentors, Mm -hmm. do you feel um, a responsibility to kind of carry it forward? Well, for sure, Uh, both for the men and the women. Mm -hmm. Um, So our trainees now are at the age where they're having children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I tell them, have your children whenever you want. There's going to be no space that just opens up in front of you and just, mm-hmm. you have to learn the balance. And so have your children whenever it's the right time for you and the work will take care of itself and we'll figure all that out. So now we have on-site child care, which also makes it that much easier. Mm-hmm. So um, can you tell me a little bit about the experience as you now have a full lab of your own um, of people coming into your lab and bringing new technologies and new ideas that are really on sort of the cutting edge and you're learning about them with the people who are working under you? Yes, I think probably for me the bioinformatics is mm-hmm. the element that is so different now from when I trained. When I did my PhD and even postdoctoral work, mm-hmm. we were pure bench scientists, but now we have so much large data. Mm-hmm. And the ability to analyze that data is so important that bioinformatic analysis is a very integral part Mm -hmm. of your work. And I feel in my lab it's very important that people have training both in the wet bench work as Mm -hmm. well as the computational work. And so we have a few people in the lab who are more on the computational side and have that expertise. But everyone in the lab is expected to do both bench work mm-hmm. and computational work. And the people who are more bench focused are learning from the people who are more computationally focused. And then we have experts on the larger campus, mm-hmm. for instance, at the Computation Institute, who over time have helped us. Um, so again, we benefit from being on a very uh, small mm-hmm. campus with a deep sense of community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so. I'm hoping that people in the lab are getting both training in the bioinformatics and the the wet work. You mentioned Janet Raleigh and uh, Michelle LeBeau Mm -hmm. and Fumi Alapotomy. We're very pleased to have been fundees Mm -hmm. of all of those women. Um, Dr. Raleigh particularly was very vocal about the need for private philanthropy in Mm -hmm. science Mm -hmm. and the idea of making uh, early stage investments, being Mm -hmm. venture philanthropists for science. Can you tell me a little bit about what your experience has been in terms of finding funding and when you think there are particularly 
uh, dangerous times in someone's mm-hmm, career mm-hmm. as they start as a scientist. Yes. Uh, well, for me, I've, as I said, been the beneficiary of seed money, if you will, to these early ideas. Early ideas are untested, uncharted, and often somewhat, um, somewhat, uh, how shall I say, dangerous, if you will, uh, uncharted, really, uh, not substantiated yet. Mm -hmm. And so they're risky. And although national, say, federal funding agencies might say on paper that they want to fund high-risk, high-reward projects, Mm -hmm. in practice, they're quite conservative. And so those reviewers almost need to see a very, very clear path of past success and almost guaranteed future success in order to fund something. Mm -hmm. And that's not what a first idea looks Mm -hmm. like. And so when I started having the sense from my clinical work that inherited predisposition to blood cancers was common, Mm -hmm. no one in the field accepted that to be true. It's not what we were taught. Mm -hmm. And so it really required that early investment from Cancer Research Foundation to give the support to allow us to do the work, to publish the studies that started really to convince the community. And then it feels like a snowball. Once it starts to pick up traction in the field, Mm -hmm. then the larger foundations start accepting the ideas and then it, it almost takes on a life of its own. But someone has to start funding that first seed. Um, And we're very lucky here that we have institutions like the Cancer Research Foundation that are willing to fund high-risk, high-reward projects. Well, we're very happy to have the opportunity to fund those. Um, You know, the mission of the Cancer Research Foundation is to fund novel ideas and new Mm -hmm. scientists, the hope of being part of transformational moments in Mm -hmm. cancer. And I think it's pretty clear that the work that you're doing in genetics and predispositions is that kind of transformational event. And I think we will look back on this time and realize that it's it's almost inconceivable to us that we didn't Mm -hmm. think of it this way in the Mm -hmm. first place. Uh, So thank you, Lucy. I really appreciate the time and everything you've done for us. Thank you for all the support. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to learn more about the CRF, our programs like the Fletcher Scholars Program, you can go to cancerresearchfdn.org. The Cancer Research Foundation is able to support bold ideas in cancer research through the generous support of people just like you, our amazing donors. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and the private funds we raise go directly to supporting groundbreaking research but we need your help. To continue to fund early career cancer science, we rely on your generous donations to continue to fight against cancer. As little as five or $10 can make a huge difference. Go to cancerresearchfdn.org forward slash donate to learn more. That's cancerresearchfdn.org forward slash donate. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you so much again. Until next time.